This is a download from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good evening. You're tuned into the Evening Edition. I'm Caroline Earle. The 1st of December was World AIDS Day, and to commemorate it this month, we're featuring a special radio series. Now, throughout the next four weeks, we'll be speaking with people living with HIV AIDS, medical professionals, caretakers, as well as activists. Now, this is the first episode of Positive Lives, a show about the human stories of HIV and AIDS here in Malaysia. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with three individuals who've battled the state of their health to lead fulfilling lives. And today, they're an inspiration to others, helping other people living with HIV and AIDS, as well as playing an active role to fight infections in the country. Now, Ben Montero has been a long-standing advocate on issues relating to HIV-AIDS, as well as a counsellor. But back in 1994, it was a completely different scenario. Ben had been struggling with drug addiction himself, and it was that or unsafe sex which led to the infection. But either way, when Ben first found out about his HIV status, he didn't know how to deal with the news. When the doctor asked me, do I have any questions, then I asked him, I said, how many more years do I have living with HIV? And the doctor told me I had seven more years. And at that time, when, when they told me that I only had seven more years, that was the thing that really broke me down. So Ben had to face a lot of stigma from people around him. He also became separated from his daughter, who was a year old at the time. I had to leave home. I had to leave home and uh, go out and live on my own and things like this. Ben eventually found his way to helpful and caring doctors. But before that, he'd found that his HIV status had been leaked. One day, two people came to his house professing that they had a cure for HIV AIDS. Desperate for any hope, Ben decided to give them a try. I thought it was real. Hmm? I had to pay for it. I had to pay $7,000 for it. But I thought, never mind. Huh? As long as I can get cured from HIV, that was my first thought. Hmm? And I went and stayed with them for like six months. They used to do all sorts of experiments on me and things like this. And at one time, hmm, because every time after the experiment, they would take me to for blood test to see whether hmm, I was negative. And at one time, they took me to a hospital. And I don't know how, by mistake, that the test came out negative. And so these people, they thought they got the cure for, <laughs> for HIV. <laughs> but then the doctor there at that time, mm-hmm. Prof Rokia, she pulled me aside and mm, she said, Ben, if these people are really true, we do another test. Hmm? If you are negative, I will be so happy for you. And, uh, and then I do know that there's something to look ahead to. Hmm? So I did another test and my test was positive again. So that was the time when these people just asked me to move out. Hmm? They disappeared. And I was under the care of Prof. Rokia. 
and his doctor, Professor Rokia Ismail, turned out to play a huge role in encouraging Ben to get better. Back then in 1990, okay, because HIV was still very new in Malaysia, she was, she was very protective towards us. She sometimes, you know, it was like that muddly kind of care, like muddly love, no, um, oh, these my children, <laughs> yeah. Because I, I was still on drugs at that, that time, you know. And I, my, I never went for my follow-ups, you know, and she got really, she got pissed off with me. One time she told me, she said, Ben, she said, ah, we want to take care of you, but if you still want to carry on ah, and kill yourself, then I don't want to see you anymore. <laughs> she told me that, you know, I pissed this woman off. <laughs> Mm. And after that, I, mm, I, I carried out my, I carried on treatments with her. But way beyond treating Ben's health condition, Professor Rokia helped him regain a sense of self-worth. She encouraged me to talk to doctors, mm, to her student doctors about uh, drug use, drug user behaviour, how to treat drug users and things like this. It was more, yeah, to sensitize doctors, you know, and she was good and she would always encourage me. She would call me up and say, Ben, you do this. I tell you, in one way, yes, she was sensitizing the doctors. In another way, she was building that self-esteem back in me, you know. I, I didn't see that at that time, no. I didn't see that, but you know, she was helping me to, to, to deal with my... With, with what I am. Another doctor Ben fondly remembers is Professor Adiba Kamarul Zaman. Adiba, I tell you, is a wonderful woman. When, when she first came back to Malaysia and did um, infectious diseases, she was so young mm. <laughs> and sweet and uh, really, uh, she's a very nice person. She's a very nice person. And um, I know the, the work, the work that she's done in PPUM. Yeah, I mean, to, to put up with patients like me who are drug users. Uh -huh. huh? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. That's why she came up with the harm reduction and things like that. <laughs> But Ben also craved for group support, so he turned to the PT Foundation. That's an NGO that provides HIV-AIDS education and support programs. They were very supportive, but at that time, I mean, being a heterosexual and coming to PT Foundation where um, you have to deal with the different sexualities and, um, and genders, it was a cultural shock to me. I just went into the closet back again, and I became very self-destructive. They were good, hmm? but I, I, I just couldn't... Um, to me, it, it was me. It was me accepting other people for, for who they are. And then I got self-destructive and suicidal and things like this. I remember I, was, I tried drug overdose twice. And after trying to, you know, trying suicide for 
two times and didn't work. Then I realized that you must the guy up above huh? <laughs> doesn't want to take me yet. <laughs> so realizing that he had to live, Ben signed into a 12-step program under Narcotics Anonymous to tackle his struggle with drug addiction. It was a six-month program that I did a year, um, after which I was a staff member. And that, I mean, gave me the love to work with drug users. Because, I mean, coming from a drug use background, um, learning, I mean, um, what it takes for me to, uh, to, to come out of it, that gave me the motivation to help drug, other drug users to quit using. Okay, yes, I admit and I know that after doing my 12-step treatment, I've had a couple of relapses because relapse is real. But I thank God that it's been what, now 12 years. So 12 years since Ben has quit drugs for good, he eventually returned to the PT Foundation and was involved in their peer support activities under the Positive Living program. It was also at Positive Living that Ben met someone else who inspired his own work. Then I got to meet up with uh, Ato Roslan. He took me out and we started doing uh, outreach and care, caregiving at the hospitals in at HKL and the pediatrics. And I remember how Ato, I tell you, he had a heart of gold um, for children and things. Uh, I remember every time before going to the pediatric ward, we would go buy toys and sweets and <laughs> all sorts of things. I asked him, Tok, ni untuk siapa? Ah, Ben, ni untuk budak-budak sana lah. And it came out from his own pocket. And, and he showed me that there are the people who are worse off than I am. And people, and children who were born with HIV. That really changed my mind. That really, I mean, it got me to think about that there are people who are, who are worse off than me, who needed more help, more care and things like that. Ben's work in HIV-AIDS has also included his role as a regional advisor for UNDP's We Care Initiative, as well as an acting role in Buka Api, a documentary on the lives of Matnyas. And by now, it's been 27 years since Ben was first diagnosed to be HIV positive. Now, in his role as a caregiver and peer counsellor, Ben has had the opportunity to encourage others to lead fulfilling lives and not be restrained by their HIV status. I have my own set of uh, clients that who have been with me for years, mm, who have, I mean, mm, after they found out that they were, mm, they were HIV positive, they were scared to have children, and I helped them adopt a child and things <laughs> like this. And then women who, mm, who thought that, I mean, being HIV positive, that nobody wants to marry you. And I used to tell them, I said, look, go find another hmm, HIV positive partner. And I know I've introduced <laughs> a few, <laughs> but one I know who's doing very well now, ASEAN, 
she and her husband now they have three so so healthy looking children which when I look back at these things I, I, I just think about it and I smile and say to myself yes this is some of the things the, the little that I can help give make people happy in just a bit, we're going to be talking to another guest who's dedicated more than two decades of his life to managing a shelter for HIV AIDS. Stay tuned to the Evening Edition. This is BFM 89.9. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. You tuned into the Evening Edition. I'm Caroline O. Now, today is our first episode of Positive Lives, a four-part program that we're featuring this month to commemorate World AIDS Day. Michael Chow is 57 years old this year. His story with HIV and AIDS began in his youth, where he got involved with gangsterism, took drugs and practiced unsafe sex. It was not until he was 30 years old that he decided that he'd had enough of the lifestyle. After that, uh, I changed my life because uh, I want to go to further study. Uh, in Jalan uh, Kasing, PJ, uh, is a Bible college. Lah. Uh, because of my background, they want me to have a blood test. Uh, from uh, 1990, I found I'm a positive. So I asked the doctor, uh, my life can go how long? The doctor said, he's not a god. I don't know what I can go how long. If by, <coughs> by scientists, they say seven years to ten years. But... Uh, can I do, can I go to study or not? That time, I asked the doctor, the doctor said, what you want to do, you do lah. I mean, what you want to do, you do. I mean, my life is very short, lady, man. <laughs> Actually, I want to commit suicide so. <laughs> but I hear the, I, I hear the voice say, say, son, you still have a long way to go. Now, as for his treatment, the medicine was too expensive at the time. It would have cost him 1,800 ringgit every single month. I couldn't afford it. Uh. So I just, uh, just regular go to check up only, check my CD4. Then in 1994, I changed to uh, HKL, Dr. Chris there. Dr. Dr. Christopher Lee, who Michael had consulted ever since then, enrolled Michael into clinical trials so that he could get medication for free. It was also during his time in college that he came up with the idea to start a home for people living with HIV-AIDS. When I go to UM, UMC checkup at uh, the time, one of the clients just came and sit beside of me he told me that, he said, uh, Michael, I need a place to become my turning point, my, my life turning point. La. Then, uh, you know, I'm studying in college and not uh, much. And that I share my bread with him. From that then I, I get my idea that I finish the study, then I start the Faith Helping Centre. For the people. Lah. So in 1994, Faith Helping Centre was born. I never asked for people, uh, I, I never raising fund, funding or something first. I start first, uh, use my EPF and all, sell my car, then I started uh, 
after I have report already, I show people that, yeah, I'm doing this one. It means that I'm sincere to do it. Can you all support me? Faith Helping Centre started out as a double-storey house, but with financial assistance from a friend, Michael expanded it to include a second house. Uh, today, one of them houses men and the other women and children. I slowly start from one first. Then after that, in 1996, one of the clients, he stayed here also. Because that time he hopeless, he never, he didn't have day to go. He, uh, doctor asked me to go visit him, intake him, come, come inside my centre. I just take, take, take him like that, but uh, he quite gentleman. He say when I get my EPF, I give you five thousand. Go for your holiday, because he see me every day working, working, never go to holiday. So uh, when I get the five thousand, I open another. Because going holiday, finish the five thousand, nothing really. So I leave the five thousand, and now I, I have another house. Uh, help more people. At least have more chance people can come in. Michael's family knew that he was starting a home for HIV-AIDS but didn't know about his HIV status until Michael did an interview. One of the newspaper interviewed me, come, come to interview me. So I just uh, say, I'll just, uh, I'm also one of them. So my house phone become hotline. A lot of people say, your son is HIV positive. So... No, la, I, uh, my son said he opened a HIV center. So I know that I cannot uh, hide the, the, the things anymore. I, one day at the night, I call up my parents uh, after dinner, uh, do all things, and we sit down together. I just tell them, I uh, say, say uh, uh, Father, Mother, I'm HIV positive also. Uh, of course, mother is crying. Uh, lady was uh, father. The the eyes swept, but he told me that he said, uh, "Son, although you are HIV positive, just take it like a cancer. But I hope you serve people like Jesus. Wash the people, wash the disciples' feet. Mean that you are." It's a servanthood, not like uh, people serve you. You go to serve people. That's my, my father give me the, 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 the words. Michael's family remained supportive of him, but his job as a caretaker proved to be a really difficult one. Now, this was especially so in the earlier years when the medicines weren't as effective as those today. I still remember in uh, 2000 years, in nearby Chinese New Year, if I I do a funeral here, uh, so my whole Chinese New Year I I not I not really uh, enjoy in this uh, uh, fifteen days uh, about sixteen people go away pass away, so morning I I conduct a funerals. Uh, Evening, I contact a funeral. Uh, so just imagine that. 
Throughout Michael's work in HIV AIDS, one person who's inspired him the most is Dr. Christopher Lee. To me, to see is uh, so special. He really uh, put a lot of heart and effort to the patient. He can talk to the patient until, uh, let's say, five o'clock finish, but he can talk to the patient until seven. Then he, uh, the patient understand all the things, then he, he, he will live. If any patient pass away, he really angry. He say, you all never take care nicely or something like that. He not just think about, say, uh, after the treatment, then uh, they okay already. He also shared with me how we can help them to uh, go back to the society. He just like a grassroots doctor like that. I think he teach me a lot. Lah. He is my teacher, my counselor. Sometimes I have some problem, I just go to call him, make an appointment and talk to him, ask him advice. He also inspired me like how to uh, really take care of people. Michael's untiring efforts earned him the Tun Dr. City Hasma Award in 2002. And once again, the award money went directly into funds for Faith Helping Centre. They call me up. They say, uh, you are this year City Hasma Award. One of the staff. I say, you are joke for, to me. They say, you think I have time to joke with you? <laughs> when I get the award time, first thing in my mind, I was thinking, uh, yeah, somebody is recognizing my work, but I need to do more humble myself. Uh, I need to serve the people more humbly. Michael is no stranger to stigma. One especially negative experience led to the breakup of his previous relationship. His status had been leaked and the information reached the ears of his then-girlfriend's family. So suddenly the news break out, the mother knows. So the mother phoned to me early morning. Blah, 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 you know. Blah. So a so few yeah, people, daughter, yeah. She is a nice girl, actually. For four years after the breakup, Michael was afraid of being in another relationship. But then he met his current wife. And when they got married, his witnesses included Datin Paduka Marina Mahathir and, of course, Dr. Christopher. Now Michael lives with his wife and they've been happily married for seven years. So, three of us live together. Uh, my, my son is quite... Uh, my relationship is quite close. Lah. So come back, daddy, 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 hug me and all. He just finished his college and he needs to go to start to work like that. It's now been 27 years since Michael was diagnosed to be HIV positive and he wants other people living with HIV AIDS to know that their status shouldn't stop them from pursuing a fulfilling life. Another way I need to think that I can let the positive people have a hope. They also can get married, but uh, you need to go to counselling first. Actually, stigma and discrimination is the killer for the HIV people. But you are the, you already infected, just accept it, 
because now medicine is enough to uh, prolife your life longer. Just live normal life. That was Michael Chow, founder of Faith Helping Centre, also known as Class Care Centre. Now, coming up after the news... My mother got a call. So straight away, the, the person launched into this lecture to say that, oh, in that case, don't rent a room to him, uh, kicking him out because he has got AIDS. Stay tuned. It's the Evening Edition, BFM 89.9. Bodacious, fabulous minds. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. This is the Evening Edition. I'm Caroline O. This is Positive Lives, a show about the human stories of Malaysia's HIV-AIDS journey. Andrew Tan is currently the Vice President of KLSS, or CLASS, or the Kuala Lumpur AIDS Support Services Society. Now, the upbeat and enthusiastic advocate has worked with CLASS for many, many years to help other people living with HIV-AIDS. When he was diagnosed as HIV-positive in 1994, he was immediately hit by the reality of the stigma that surrounds the condition. At that point in time, I suppose um, there was not much that was known about HIV um, and there was a lot of fear and which added on to the discrimination. The, the doctor in the private hospital where I got tested uh, told me that they had to report me to the Ministry of Health because it was a uh, communicable disease and they had to uh, it was their responsibility to report. So uh, it was not until uh, some time later that my mother got a call. And this person who was working at the uh, Department of Health uh, called up uh, my home and, and asked, does uh, Andrew live here? And my mum, suspecting that it was uh, this online marketing or, or you know or, or telephone marketing person um, just said uh, oh Andrew rents a room so straight away the, the person launched into this lecture to say that oh in that case don't rent a room to him uh, kicking him out because he has got AIDS it was a breach of confidentiality because um, I don't know how many other people he has done that to but the thing is that uh, maybe other people were not as lucky as me to have uh, a mum who loved them so much. So I suspected that many people would have kicked, been actually kicked out, you know, living on the street. And I don't think that would have helped them be very adherent or compliant to medication at all. So um, I was very angry, of course. But at the same time, um, my mum my didn't know what to do. She was crying and then she called my brother and my brother ended up crying, and before I knew it, the, the whole family found out within a day. And uh, so everybody uh, dealt with it in, in different ways. Uh, I suppose my mum was, was more of, uh, was more of um, what do you want to eat? Uh, you know, thinking that I'm going to die very soon. So yeah, so she wanted to make sure that I had my, all my favourite foods so that I wouldn't end up being a hungry ghost. <laughs> For a year after the diagnosis, Andrew didn't seek treatment. When I, I didn't seek treatment, I was actually also preparing to die. So I was writing my will and getting all these things prepared, um, waiting to go. And uh, towards the uh, 1995 itself, 
I finally confided in one of my friends who was working with a uh, volunteer with one of the NGOs uh, in, in KL. And he said, um, oh, uh, there's actually a very good uh, ID specialist in university hospital. So uh, he, he, from that time onwards, I actually went uh, to university hospital. And one of my first doctors, the first doctor that I met was Professor Rokia. Um, very uh, strict, but very good, very caring doctor. And, uh, and that was my beginning of the recovery process. So at that point in time, um, my perception of doctors was doctors are God. So <laughs> the doctor says, take medicine, I take medicine. Um, it may be also because uh, at that point in time, I was too afraid to die. Andrew also went through a difficult time of self-discrimination. At that point in time, I wasn't quite sure how the virus was spread. So I would make excuses that I'd be working late, even though I had nothing to do. I would stay in the office very late. And I would make sure that uh, they would all have eaten their, their food. So I, I would make sure that I would go back midnight after midnight, after everyone had eaten the food. And then my mum had put all the, uh, extra, the balance into a plate. And then I would eat by myself because I would make sure that way that uh, I won't infect them by sharing food with them. And after that, I would make sure I wash my plate and wash it a number of times, make sure it was clean enough and put it far, far away so that it would be not, nobody would reach it, you know, except me. Um, so that was a, a, a tough period of time because the, 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 f the fear of not knowing is one of the worst things, um, lack of information. And uh, so the stigma and discrimination hung on for a long time until finally I learned that I cannot pass the virus to anyone by sharing food, uh, by using the same toilet, by getting bitten by mosquitoes, a lot of the by myths hugging. that we have, yeah, by hugging. So it took a long time uh, for that information to sink in. I had to teach myself and I had to make sure that I shared it with, with them. Um, so... At, this, at that point in time, my, my brother and sister-in-law also were very supportive because uh, they had the first child and they, they made sure that they always brought the first child to come and meet me and stuff like that. So, just not knowing also how long I would have. Um, and, uh, and, and that was, that was uh, more of, of the fear of everything. Everything scared, scared me. Everything uh, was uh, a question mark of not knowing. Now, Andrew didn't reach out for support throughout the first eight years since he knew about his status. But fortunately, he had supportive people around him who cared for him. My partner was my, my strongest support system, my family, uh, who basically was there. She didn't, they didn't know really what to do, but the thing is that they were just there because they were my family. You know, they, they, were, they were committed because they were, you know, uh, family. That's it. You know, there was no other, no other uh, reason uh, for, for them because even they didn't know very much about it. There was not much. At those days, there wasn't any internet information at all. Um, but uh, the main support system was from my partner and my doctors over the years. In 2002, Andrew's doctor suggested for him to work in peer support. He hasn't looked back since. My doctor at that time was uh, Dr. Tan, uh, Dr. Tan Lin Huat. And he was the one who told me, Andrew, you're doing well in treatment. Do you want to help somebody else? 
who's newly diagnosed. So I thought, okay, I've already survived eight years. Um, okay, just give me one patient, you know, and I will try and help them. So it started with one, and then after that, another one, <laughs> another one. So, so now uh, I, I'm very fortunate because many other doctors trust me with their, their patients. When a lot of times when the, the patients come in and they get diagnosed uh, with HIV, the doctors will straight away give them my number. Um, I told the doctors, you don't even have to ask my permission anymore because the thing is that uh, when the patient calls me, the, the patient will just say, oh, I got your number from Dr. So-and-so, and straight away, I will use that as, as uh, my, my uh, guide to say that, okay, I know that the doctor has, they have, they, they have excess treatment, and uh, they have been uh, counseled by the doctor, and now my, my duty is to take over to help with the psychological support emotional support and getting them to be ready on treatment as, as quickly as possible. Um, so in a way, it, I, I realized that I'm not useless anymore. I actually have a, a, a calling, uh, some, uh, something, something that I can contribute uh, to society. But counselling work wasn't always easy. It was the time when I counselled someone who reminded me so much about myself. Uh, I was very surprised because they invited me to their house. We sat down there and uh, we talked. And then when I was done, I went back and I told my partner, I don't know why, but I'm feeling very tired. I just went to the, the room. I lied, lay down in bed and I couldn't stop crying. And I couldn't figure out why. I was very scared because uh, I had never reacted like that before. And I panicked and I, I contacted uh, Dr. Tan and he immediately spotted it. He said that what you're experiencing is counter-transference. You're actually uh, mixing your emotions with the client's emotions. And you, it's brought you back to uh, the period of time when you were first diagnosed. So you're feeling the emotions that have long gone but it has resurfaced because somebody else who is facing the same thing now. And he says that you have to be able to separate your emotions with, with theirs because if, you, if they can bring you down to their level of emotional um, weakness right, and, and fear, you are of no help to them. Because then when I realised that I, I was... Uh, made a, it made it a point to actually... Um, be very clear that this is my client's emotions. This is what they're feeling now because they are newly diagnosed. And this is where I am at today. And my emotions are here. And that's why I am able to help them because I'm much stronger than before. So, so I, I, I no longer feel that, 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 that fear of being pulled back to the past. Um, I know how to deal with it. And it has helped me very, a lot because uh, now, nowadays the, the young people are a lot more aware. They Google search everything and they have more questions and more information than, than before. Among other projects, one of the things that Andrew is working on with class is to reach out to risk groups on social applications. It has been an interesting journey uh, because initially it was just surviving. And uh, the funny thing for me was that 
my goals kept on changing because initially my goal was to see my uh, niece uh, get, being born. Then it was seeing her going to school, seeing her going off to college, seeing her graduate from university. So every time I achieved a goal, well, she just graduated uh, with, a, with a degree in psychology. So every time uh, I, I reach a goal, I move the goalpost a little bit. And actually that has probably helped me survive a lot more longer than, than I actually expected to. And uh, th that together with the support I've been getting from my partner and my family, so I'm one of the few people who have been very blessed. Uh, I know that not everybody is as, as fortunate as me. And uh, all this while, I also never thought that I would be an activist or uh, uh, so outspoken uh, an advocate for, for uh, HIV knowledge. Uh, but through, through the journey, I sort of realized that it's an evolution of a person uh, first, you think that you're nothing. You're not worth anybody's time. Then eventually, when as treatment uh, goes on and you survive, it comes a day when you realise, oh yeah, I'm still alive. And when that realisation comes in, that you've survived such a long time, you want to do something about it. You want to use that gift that you've been given, the extra 23 years, to help somebody else. And um, it's, it's my own small way of, of thanking the doctors and nurses who have uh, saved my life. Um, I will never be able to repay them. So the only thing I can do is actually pay it forward and help other people. And uh, that is, is something that I think uh, they can understand, uh, that, that I will continue to do what I can for as long as I can. For Andrew, what's important now is to get everyone to receive regular HIV testing and required treatment. What is very important to me right now is the question of how to encourage more people to come out for testing. And uh, once they are tested positive, how to get all of them on treatment and virally suppressed. Because uh, what we're looking at right now is not individual viral loads, but communal viral load. So if we can get the communal viral load down to undetectable, uh, we can actually stop the spread of HIV. That means everybody who is at risk gets tested. Everybody who is tested HIV positive on treatment, go see a doctor, get tested. Because the thing is that as long as you're having sex, you're also having sex with everybody else. <laughs> it's not only just one person. And... and uh, take responsibility because a lot of times the judgmental attitudes do not go away. That was Andrew Tan, Vice President of CLASS. Now in just a bit, we'll be revisiting our first guest, Ben Montero, as well as his daughter. Stay tuned to the Evening Edition. This is BFM 89.9. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. You're with Carolina on the Evening Edition. Now, if you remember our first guest, Ben Montero, we thought it would be a nice way to sort of wrap up today's show with the story of how he got reunited with his daughter nine years ago. It was on his birthday when he received a message out of the blue from his daughter, Roshida, whom he had not met for 11 years. 
On that day, it was my birthday. I had to go back to office and do my reports. <laughs> yeah, so after doing my reports and everything, I just went on to Facebook mm, just to check my <laughs> my mails and things. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my daughter, there was a message from her. Daddy, I miss you. I love you. I miss you. I couldn't believe it. Mm. Because we were separated when she was one plus. I, the last I saw her when she was 12 years old in Sunway Lagoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he promised me he wanted to bring me to make my IC yeah. <laughs> on my birthday. He didn't come even. <laughs> yes, because her father refused to allow me to see her. So when, step before I met him in Facebook, I've been looking since I stopped Skolam uh, Nenga. So I try cari dia lah. I got some information from my mom. Uh, dia bagi ceramah dekat church. So I try area PJ because he from PJ. So I try uh, pergi church dekat area PJ, cari dia. But masa tu tak jumpa. Uh, actually my boyfriend jumpa him dekat Facebook. <laughs> so I I tak ada gambar daddy. Even one picture I doesn't have. So I don't know how he look like. I really don't know. So... Masa dia jumpa, dia cakap, this is your daddy lah. It's like, real ke? Tak handsome pun. <laughs> Because we, we only got a side face. And, really? Besarnya telinga. Yalah, like your telinga. <laughs> you see, you see the nose. Montero nose, no? <laughs> It's funny. At the first, I really don't know how to feel. Macam, um, I send the message one week. After one week, uh, I tunggu lah kalau dia ada call because I leave the number. So, after one week, then he call. Uh, he call, uh, this is, uh, hello, this is Rashida. Yeah, Rashida, because normally people don't call me my full name. People used to call me Shira. So, when somebody call me Rashida, that's mean family or my classmate. Rashida, yeah, Rashida. This daddy. Huh? Daddy. <laughs> so, like, really, yeah. <laughs> At that time you live in Klang, right? Yeah. Uh, so he said uh, we want to make uh, we want to meet next uh, the next day lah. Yeah. Uh, tapi dia tak boleh tahan dah malam-malam dah pukul 12 lebih macam tu dia call cakap kita jumpa lah. That time I stay dekat Rawang, Daddy stay dekat Klang. So dalam pukul satu lebih tu dekat kedai Mama. <laughs> jumpa <laughs> macam tu. Hi, <laughs> first I memang tak percaya. I don't know, terkejut or... But happy lah. Uh, after so long kan, I tahu yang... Because masa kecil-kecil kan, uh, mak I pernah cakap, uh, ayah I dah tak ada tau. So, I prove to people, uh, ayah I masih ada. And sihat pun, is something like, betul-betul lain dengan apa yang orang cakap. Orang cakap ayah I sakit, orang I cakap ayah I... You know, there's so many bad things. But bila I jumpa, uh, it's totally different. And one thing, sekarang I very proud to talk about my father to a lot of people. Um, macam mana dia, lawan sakit. Um, masa kita duduk sama-sama pun, dia ada sakit juga kan. So, 
I percaya sangat Tuhan tu ah dia dah plan everything and dia jumpakan I dengan Daddy bila dia dah sihat. So I tak payah in my memory ah I tak ada picture yang bad pasal Daddy I. I tak ada gambar masa dia sakit. In my memory there's nothing sad about him. It's always fun, it's always happy, positive. And one thing I learn from him is positive can make you alive. That was Ben and Rashida Montero. Now if you missed any part of this episode of Positive Lives, you can download the podcast on our BFM app that's available on the Apple App Store and also on Google Play. This episode was produced by Josie Lu, made in collaboration with Kamal Sohami Fadzil from the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at the University of Malaya. You've been listening to the Evening Edition. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.